Hello, and welcome to 2020. My name is Mark, and I'm the founder of Climactic, the podcast that began in 2018 with a mission of raising the voices of Australia's climate community. Now, it's early January of 2020, and the climate voice is nearly everywhere. It's crying out from an environment minister in New South Wales to former fire chiefs, from the front pages of newspapers around the world to thousands of fellow Australians being evacuated by Royal Australian Navy ships. It's saying that the climate of Australia has changed. And today, we're bringing you the episode of the year from our humble program, as chosen by you, the listener. And as is only right, it's an episode that looks our fiery present in the face and talks to our shared grief. And it does this sometimes through poetry. It was a tied vote, but ultimately I broke that tie myself. Because as excellent as Dr. Vina was in explaining the practicalities of local manufacturing and a circular economy, I think that what we need right now is Beth Spencer. In conversation with poet Magdalena Ball, please enjoy this episode of the year and join us back here next Sunday for your first new episode of 2020, episode number 99. Also, if you're enjoying the Climate Podcast, we'd love to hear what you think. Just send us a message on Facebook or at hello at climactic.fm and share the word with your friends, including hashtag Climate Cheers. My name is Mark Spencer, and I have the privilege of introducing today's episode from co-host Beth Spencer one of the founding hosts of the newest show on the Climactic Network, Artbreaker. This is a fantastic interview she conducted with acclaimed writer, poet, interviewer, woman of many hats, Magdalena Ball. And I could go on to give a long-winded introduction to this episode, but as I'm sure you can hear, my voice is a little on the horse side today. See, today is the 30th of November, and yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of the school strike for climate movement. I was out on the streets all day, and I think I left my voice behind. So I'll make my remarks here brief, but just for a little bit of context before getting into this episode, this had originally been planned to be an episode of Artbreaker. However, there was just too much good conversation to get into the shorter format of that show. So we wanted to bring it to you here. So if you enjoy the art of creativity in the written word or poetry, and you're curious about how it can intersect with the climate crisis that we're all facing, this is a fantastic conversation with a creator and a thinker who's right there with you. Magdalena was also kind enough to share some of her work, and it's such a gift to hear a talented poet read aloud their work for you. So we're so happy to be able to bring that in this episode. Today's show notes are jam-packed full of great stuff, so if you enjoyed this, please do check them out at the end for Magdalena's own podcast or to order some of her work. My thanks to Magdalena and Beth for this wonderful episode of Climactic. Enjoy!
the newest podcast on the Climactic Network, where we explore art and creativity in a time of climate crisis. My wonderful guest today is Magdalena Ball. and Magdalena is an award-winning poet and novelist. She also runs an amazing book review site, newsletter and podcast called Compulsive Reader. You can subscribe to that at compulsivereader.com. She has published a lot of books, and most recently, one called Unreliable Narratives from Girls on Key Press and High Wire Step from Flying Islands, which is a beautiful collection of poems that explores all sorts of issues to do with life and love and loss and ecology and politics and greed and grief and living in the Anthropocene in very evocative ways. So welcome, Magdalena. We are really pleased to have you on Outbreaker. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. It's an absolute delight to be here, and I'm really excited about this new podcast. So you've got a bit of a hybrid accent there. You were born and grew up in New York. Why did you end up in Australia? How did you end up in Australia? Uh, I guess you could say it's a love story. Mm, that's nice. <laughs> so I went to, um, when I, I did my undergraduate degree in, in New York City. I grew up in New York City, um, very much a New Yorker. And uh, and I, I sort of applied. I was, somebody encouraged me. I was doing pretty well as an undergraduate. I was studying English Lit and, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. I had a, a few good teachers, which is usually all it takes to love something. And um, I, I was encouraged to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship which I did apply for and uh, and I didn't get. Um, I'd like to think it's because I really had no sports whatsoever. I just made something up ridiculous. Um, but I... But in... <laughs> what did you make up that was sporty? I, I, I'm embarrassed to actually say it, but um, I, I think I put down angling, <laughs> which to be honest, all I'd ever done in the way of fishing was on a stick pole, um, you know, with a, a worm on the end of it. Uh, my dad's had some land in upstate New York and I, I, we used to get catfish on stick poles and that became angling. Well, that, uh, you would have possibly been the first road scholar that yeah, got in that's there right. angling. And I was very far from being an angler um, other than angling in the way of, uh, of pretending to be a fisherman when I wasn't. But nevertheless, in the, in the process of applying for a road scholarship, I, I, thought, um, I thought about and imagined and daydreamed about the idea of going to Oxford um, to do a degree in English literature. It just seems so unbearably romantic. I was like um, Jude in Jude the Obscure, I think. And uh, and I, I decided I really wanted to do it. And when I actually sat down and looked at the costs associated with going to do a postgraduate degree in England versus going to, say, Columbia University, which is just up the road from me, um, even with the scholarship, I did get a scholarship. I was a good student, good Swati student. Um, I got a scholarship to Columbia University, but um, even with that scholarship, 
flying overseas and not being allowed to work in Oxford was cheaper than going to Columbia with my scholarship. So even as an overseas student, that's how expensive U.S. degrees at an Ivy wow, League are, America. Um, even yeah. back then. And that was a long time ago, I'm afraid. But even yeah. back then, it was so expensive um, that I decided I could do it. I'd been working through my undergraduate degree. I had enough money, so I went. So you went to Oxford and then ended up in Australia? I went to Oxford and um, I moved in with a guy who, readers, I married him. (laughs) (laughs) And so I ended up, uh, his parents had migrated to uh, Australia about 15 years prior and he'd just come back from visiting them when I met him. So he was kind of full of Australia and how beautiful it was here and how much he wanted to get back. And we still, I still wanted to go back to the US. So I went back, we went back together after we got married for a little while. And, um, and he hated it. <laughs> I found it irritating. Sometimes it is hard when you've moved overseas to go back home. All these little things that you never really paid any attention to start to irritate you. When we, we had applied for migration to Australia on the point system, and when we got accepted, it took nearly a year, but when we finally got accepted, we decided to go for it. We were young and unattached, and it seemed like a fun adventure. I'd never been to Australia before, but... Uh, nearly 30 years later, here I am. Here you are. And so what, where you are right now, in outside of Newcastle, what's outside your window? Um, well, I live in, in Martinsville. I live in a, a really lovely rural area in uh, West Lake Macquarie, um, which is in nearly in the Wadigan Mountains. My place actually backs onto the Wadigan Mountains. So it's, oh, how beautiful. Um, it's a long cry from New York City. It's very rural, oh. <laughs> very peaceful. Um, well, it's, and it's very- it's very relevant to the book, actually, because that book is like it takes you from New York City to Australia to just all around the world, really, in that kind of a way. Absolutely. And I do and, I do often feel like a city girl, ah, you know, inside. In and yet yeah, yeah. I try and maintain that sense of wonder. It's, it's, sometimes it's hard. You know, we're all busy. We just go about our lives mm. and you forget to look out the window. So I'm looking out, literally looking out my window. There are some Good. banana trees. <laughs> um, there's a, actually a, um, there's a crimson rosella on oh. the deck <laughs> right now, which is utterly beautiful. So, um, you know, parrots and birds. There's always bird song. Um, and there's just forest around me. I can see the forest, which is lovely. There's rocks. I can see the rocks that are covered in moss. And I have been known to go. I feel like writing a poem. <laughs> I'll just go <laughs> sit out in the woods. And I will literally go out and, and sit down on the mm. ground and, and tr- just just close my eyes for a minute just for that sensual you know sort of um just to be in that environment so i feel very lucky to be out here Mm. oh there's so much even in just what you've already said that i want to ask you about but why don't we start with you reading one of the poems from your from high wise step would you like to read claude glass or cloud glass how do i pronounce that maybe tell us a little bit what that means sure i i always pronounce it claude glass um a claude glass is a black mirror Um, So it's a small mirror, which is slightly convex in shape, and it's dark. The surface is tinted, usually small, and it it tended to be used in the old days, maybe still, but mostly it's it's archaic. And it was used by artists to be able to abstract the subject and see kind of behind them. So it's, it, it creates very mm. interesting pictures. Um, that, and that a beautiful metaphor tell. for the poem too. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I originally titled the poem Black Mirror. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then I decided that was too much of a signal to the television series, which, it was, which kind of in oh. some ways inspired it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Black Mirror. It's, it, it's incredibly disturbing television series. 
um, very clever, but also very disturbing take on technology and technology taken to its extreme. So I wanted to play with that notion of the Black Mirror, um, kind of looking into our society or looking into the soul, um, but in a, a convex way. So I was playing a little with that in the title when I named it Claude Glass. And looking behind mm. you as you're looking at in front. Yeah, beautiful. Yes, looking into the past, of course, which is um, a constant theme for me. Claude Glass. One, we woke from the suburb like a long dream. The family huddled in the living room, floral chintz and animated voices, not our own spoke of films we hadn't seen. Outside the front door, a cast replica lawn jockey held a lantern, the boy's pale face frozen in servitude. He had never been alive, so it was okay. Inside, we hid in the only room we were allowed to see. The walls were covered in oblique art, edges blurred into wallpaper, into plexiglass, a new invention like television. I had been trying to break those windows for a hundred years, and still bruises rose on my knuckles. Sunlight filtered through gray double glazing. We turned our backs to see. It was all-day breakfast. Pancakes, coffee, syrup puddles, eggs, a mound of food that couldn't nourish us, smelled of hunger, while the room unwound in zucchini ribbons of light. The neighbors were visiting. Everyone had a drink, sparkling in fluorescent tones. Finger foods were passed around. When the wind came up, paper napkins blew out the door, but no scraps fell, no drinks spilled. I was unprepared for the loss that hit my solar plexus. Two. Behind the tidy lawns, shadows of buildings rose as recollections, protecting junkies who waited with their eyes. Their bodies didn't know how to wait, because every day someone was crying and it was too much. The house next door was the same house. No one knew where they lived anymore. The city was moving in, and these pink houses could no longer keep us safe. Every weekend I tried to escape, sitting alone in a hot carriage, staring at the ghosts of maple trees from a convex black mirror until I arrived at the station nearest my house. I've been at that station the whole of my short life waiting. Any moment the doors might open. That's so beautiful. Thank you. So many beautiful lines in that. Um, I had been trying to break those windows for a hundred years and still bruises rose on my knuckles. The house next door was the same house. No one knew where they lived anymore. Just simple things that just evoke so much. At what stage in writing this book did you realise that it it was actually about living in the Anthropocene or living in the time of climate crisis? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, um, I, I cannot undervalue the importance of good editing with any kind of book. So I want to start by saying that, and then I'm going to give a little nod to Kikilin, who mm. edited this book. Um, so I, I... I'll just say that Kikilin is um, an Australian poet who has been professor of English at Macau University for a long time, and he's been publishing lots of Australian poets and 
Chinese poets and poets from other languages, some in translation, bilingual. And this is part of this beautiful collection of books, this Flying Islands Pocket series, which we'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. And we hopefully might have Kit on sometime down the track as well to talk about all this. Yes. So Kit, um, I, I, I will say that a lot of my poetry pivots around that topic, the topic of the Anthropocene and the whole notion of climate change. And, you know, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that as human beings? It's a, a major issue for all of us. And so it's almost hard not to write about that. And poetry lends itself to this, to my mind, so well, because it's complex. And poetry is the best way of dealing with complexity, I find, for me anyway. I'm a word person. So art in particular is great in dealing with complexity. It's it's subtle and it can handle the subtleties of, of that. But I think it was only when um, Kit first approached me and I was, I, I feel so lucky that he did that. He, he actually approached me, I, I guess that's his way, and said, uh, you know, I, I think that you fit into my series and I would love to include you in the next group if, if you're interested. And of course I said, I'd love to. I mean, the, so many wonderful poets and, um, and writers, yourself as well, um, Beth included in that, who have been published in the Flying Islands pocket book series. But when he approached me and said, uh, would you like me to, to work with you on this? I said, you know, yes, I sent him a manuscript. And he said, uh, great, I think this will work. Why don't you come out here to my, <laughs> to my farm out in Markwell, and we'll spend the whole day on this or even a whole weekend. And I was like, wow, <laughs> mm, it was like fantastic. a retreat. Yeah, yes, I, I couldn't believe like that. It's like every poet's dream. <laughs> exactly. And it was like being at Veruna. It was sort of like a writer's retreat. We, we spent just one day on it. I didn't say the whole weekend, although we could have. Um, but I went up there in the morning and I, I left in the evening and we spent an entire day working through every poem in the collection um, face to face. And, uh, and it, it was just, it was absolutely amazing. You know what the place is like. Um, and, and Carol, Kit's wife, fed me, which is amazing as well. And, you know, she's an incredible artist. And it was just, it was a, a, an extraordinary session. And through the course of that, one of the things we discussed was the theme of the book. Mm. And, and that came up. So it was really only until I did that and had that day of working through everything that he said to me, you know, do you feel that there is a, I guess, um, a coherent theme that's coming out of all of these. And, and that's what came out, you know, this, this notion of the impact of capitalism taken to its extreme and the Anthropocene and how we are dealing with um, the impending changes wrought by human intervention into climate. Because mm. it certainly does. I mean, um, I should say here that I actually launched your book at the Newcastle Festival. Mm. And um, we might put a link in the show notes too to the launch speech. It's another Absolutely. way of looking at it. I'm hugely grateful for that. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> and it was interesting reading it because when I first um, got it, I only had a, um, an ebook version of it, just a proof. And so I was just sort of having to go linear rather than flip through. And I was looking for, as you do, looking for a theme and high wise step, what's going on here? And, and I start, it wasn't long before I started thinking, hang on, I think this is about living in climate, you know, climate, climate crisis. And then I got to the poem Anthropocene and thought, oh, okay, yes, I'm on the right track here. But it's, it's all there really in the very first poem where um, there's this great um, stanza where it says, wishing on cigarette butts. It's actually set in a playground and it says, wishing on cigarette butts to people really still, cellulose, acetate, damp with addiction, sticky with it, almost sweet, little pastries, words like discarded birds. And I just 
loved the way that image of sort of being in a playground that's like the 21st century playground where we're addicted to so many things and it's littered with like the cigarette butts and the, the rubbish discarded and so on and yet it's still a playground and um, but it's interesting too because that poem actually begins with a very personal like you're actually speaking to a you so to another person and it's a very so it's got this very personal frame that also explores this very global kind of experience so would you like to read that one sure to, to prove i'm a bastard yeah one yeah okay sure that's it the slippery dip your spine in context where we met on the playground words changing into stones or sticks but not broken bones not then now it's coffee and barking dogs the wind turns maybe a storm is brewing while you drive the colloquial, create trends, speak in tongues, promise things. Saliva slides down the chin, such lovely lies. Wishing on cigarette butts, do people really still? Cellulose acetate damp with addiction, sticky with it, almost sweet. Little pastries, words like discarded birds. It was all concrete, shuffling about in an empty schoolyard, leaning towards the idea of children, an abstraction. Did someone say sweet? None of this feng shui, snowflakes against eyelashes. Everyone has to be first in the queue, so the rest of us can be last, pretending to be the bastard, because who wants to be a victim? Once it was possible to be subversive, who could guess what we'd become? Gorgeous. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that poem? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, talk, you talked about, about this notion of the, I guess, the, the uh, correspondence of the personal and, I guess, the, the universal. I guess that is something I always like to play with <laughs> because, again, I, you know, I talked about this notion of complexity and about how we experience, um, how we experience change, how we experience transition, how we even experience memory in that way that kind of, um, it's a negotiation always between disparate things. So, you know, the past and the present, love, hate, um, loss and, and finding things. And so I, I guess I wanted to play a little bit with that too. Um, but I will say that this poem actually, um, I'm pretty sure this poem came about uh, of another, another of Kit's <laughs> um, projects, which is the Conversation and Poetry um, blog. And, um, and I can't actually remember which poem I was responding to, but I do think this one might have been a response to a poem that was on that as well, which I was, I was playing off of. Um, but yes, also the idea of, I guess, the city and the, and the, uh, the rural environment, which is another thing I, I just personally gravitate towards. As I say, there's a kind of city girl inside that loves to kind of play with the parallels between this idea of um, the city park of memory <laughs> and, and where I am in the, you know, sort of country and what we're heading, heading towards in the future. And that theme of sort of being lost without that country and you know without that that beautiful nature around you you know what are we creating here 
Yes, and um, I should point out to, to, to listeners that um, this, there's a lot of interesting spacing in this poem. So it's, it, the lines don't just run on straight. There's there's um, little few words and then a space and then a few words and a space. So it's, it's beautifully laid out and designed on the page as well. And the design of the whole book is just gorgeous. These are pocket books, so they are literally small enough to pop in your pocket or in your handbag or whatever. They always have these gorgeous photos on the front. They just feel beautiful in your hands. They're just a beautiful object. You've got a photo on the front of like a glass-fronted high-rise buildings looking up and you see the clouds. The high-wise step is actually the name of one of the poems. What does that high-wise step mean to you and the, the image? Yeah, we, we spent a bit of time looking for that image as well, yeah. trying to find something that con conveyed that kind of juxtaposition, again, of the country and the city um, and the idea of being precarious. So um, mm. that that was what Hiawara Step, that's what I was thinking of with that title, was this idea of sort of being in a very precarious position, trying to see broadly <laughs> from mm. a height, but also being um, aware that at any moment you could fall. Yeah, watch your step. And that is like, you know, these kinds of poems where you are juggling so many things in the one poem is, is kind of like a tightrope walk in a way. Mm. It really works. So in here there's poems about money and greed and inheritance, manipulations, lies, trust. There's mention of the Trump Tower in your ch mm. childhood. And there's yes. even one called The Art of the Deal. Yes. And there's also through it all, though, there's poems about very personal relationships about love and loss and so on. Mm. Can I get you to read The Art of the Deal? Of course, yes. Um, this is kind of a true story. <laughs> mm. I don't know if you can get anything such as a true story in uh, in poetry, but uh, yeah, some of the things that I think pretty much everything that I say in this is actually true and really happened. That's a, that's a whole discussion about what, the, what true means in, in poetry. Yeah, that's true. That We could have a whole session on truth and poetry. Yes, truth and um, history and poetry. Yes, let's go. So. That's right. The lie that tells a deeper truth, I think, um, as they say yeah. about fiction. Um, yes. Uh, and um, in, also, interestingly, um, one of the things that uh, I worked on this poem a lot after my session with Kit mm -hmm. and um, and he felt and I agreed with him when we kind of came as you do when you're working with a, a great editor um, you kind of come to a um, a collective agreement mm -hmm. <laughs> on what's uh, what's what but he he um, convinced me and I agreed with him that this is kind of the flagship poem for the collection it kind of sums up a lot of what I was getting at um, on mass yes book. and I felt that as I was going through and reading it you know you sort of you, you sort of think am I in the right the right ballpark you know because your, your poetry is very like it's not sort of like you just read it once and you get it you've really got to sort of be prepared to just sit with it and let it wash over you let let the, the images play with what's in your head and uh, without sort of trying to sort of rush to try and get meaning and um, but we are meaning creatures and we are story creatures. You know, we, we, we sort of, I find myself anyway, I, I'm very into story. And so it was sort of at certain points, I think, oh, yes, yes. And art, as soon as you get to the art of the deal, <laughs> instead of the yeah. Trump Tower, you kind of, yes. So it's sort of, it's, it's lovely the way it evolves like that and just sort of gives you all these little hints and then the hints get stronger and stronger and you start going, yeah, 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 here I am. So yeah, for sure. the art of the deal. Yes, the out of the deal. I will also say that um, for New Yorkers, like for most people in the world, you know, Trump is a new phenomenon. But, you know, if you grow up in New York, um, right. he was pretty well known. 
And I should just mention, just in case some listeners don't know, the art of the deal was, is it the name of his book and the name of the show or just the name of the book he put out? I, I think it was just the book. I don't yeah, think the so show, a... show was something else. It was like Shark Tank. I forget what it was. Yeah, yeah. But the art of the deal is his is his little manifesto book that he wrote um, years ago. So that's Donald Trump, who is our current US president. <laughs> hard to <laughs> say, hard to believe. Still hard to believe. But yes, so. Yes, here we go. Art of the deal. One, while I grew up in Lower Manhattan's housing project, the pre-dawn cusp of gentrification, there was a shadow rising, a skyscraper in my head, 69 stories growing upward with the realization that childhood was ending prematurely. When the tower was built on the site of Bonwit Teller's iconic department store, limestone reliefs and art deco grillwork promised to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, inconvenience of rare quality, jackhammered to dust, a binary zero-sum choice. According to a fake spokesman, later revealed to be Trump himself, the merit of these stones was not great enough to save them. It was a simple cost-benefit analysis, art versus market signals. We all knew about this kind of growth. It's chronic, like alcoholism, progresses in predictable ways. Two. That tower became the physical embodiment, neatly parceled in glass and twisted steel, of everything my mother marched against, bundling me into a minibus for Washington, handmade play cards and gas masks. But still it grew, hyperbolic and glittery. We knew about the leaky pipes, the rats, the evictions, the freezing cold New Year's, the broken light globes the endless bullying, winking beneath gilt layers of fabrication, tax abatements, because why support those those in need with one hand while groping them with the other? Moral ethos gave way to self-regard, the easy word, status, celebrity. The world is a brutal and vicious place. Screw, get even, crush, win. Slogans, sensation, and sex sells. Selling is everything. Welcome to the 80s. Three. Casinos don't release their customers until every penny is gone. Time pretends to move forward. We're in the orbital age now. It won't be long before humans enter deep space, looking for a sign, some alien race to save us from ourselves. Meanwhile, Earth, geology seething, prepares while the tower continues to grow, a monolith of mythic retribution from creator to consumer, trading history for cash, a black surface reflecting our ugliest selves, too bestial to hide from. Because here it is, the mirror, the glare, the shiny thing. It's even more stunning, these poems, when I hear you read them aloud. It's so beautiful. So I really recommend people get this book. We're talking to Magdalena Ball about her book, High Wire Step, from Flying Islands Press. And you're on Artbreaker with me, Beth Spencer. And this is the newest show from the Climactic Network. And, and Beth, can I yeah. just jump in here too and pick up something you said earlier? Um, that... Um, 
Flying Island Press has done such a gorgeous job on on the, all of their pocketbooks. They're incredibly collectible. I find them collectible. $10 each, which um, is amazing. They're $10 yes. each, which is amazing. Can they get them from you at your website? Girls on Key Press has them. Girls on Key Press has a lot of poetry there, so they have yes. a poetry portal, so check them out too. Yeah, and I think postage is like $2. They just fit in an envelope, so yeah. it's, it's pretty good stuff. And they make gorgeous presents as well. They do. But I've, I've had people say they keep them in their in their bag and when they're on the bus they just read a poem it's mm. just, or I, I have them in my kitchen when I'm waiting for the kettle to boil I'll read a poem yeah the small books it's amazing how how nice it is to have a little small book in your hand how portable how easy to carry around yeah. I really I really love them and just to make poetry part of your life rather than this big thing mm. speaking of which what is the role of creativity in a time of crime you know with everything so urgent and mm. sort of feels like a luxury to write poetry so how do you feel about that? What What's the role of creativity in a time of climate crisis or for you, whichever way you want to answer that? I think it is true that it does feel sometimes um, like an indulgence to sit down and write a poem, um, not just in a time of crisis, but, you know, in, in a time when people are hungry for their dinner <laughs> or, yeah, you know, when, when yeah. you just have to clean the house. Like, you know, there's a million other things that are calling for attention. Um, every single day, I have day job. You know, I get paid to do it. Um, I, I'm like, and you have three children, three children as well. Oh, children! So it's amazing I have, you know, how much family. you manage to do. Yeah. So I mean, there there are a million other things that I could be doing other than writing a poem at any particular point in time. But um, I will say that I do think that um, it's more urgent and and probably more in demand than ever than I have ever seen it in my life. Um, creativity and and the types of creativity that can address again complexity that can actually allow for complexity. And we live in such a commercial world, increasingly commercial on every side. And I think um, inherent in that commerciality and you know I, I don't have a particular hatred for the commercial world I'm drawn to it in many ways but I think that you know the and I tried to address this in the book it's it's pretty important as a theme as well that the whole notion of advertisements and and governments and and you know what causes people to give you three seconds of attention is is reductive and what poetry allows for is the opposite of that. It's not reductive. It, it tends not to be reductive. It tends to be expansive and demands mindfulness. It demands that you stop and you try and see things in a much, a much more um, measured way so that the full complexity comes through. It's not about seeing things in terms of um, you know, what will sell quickly, what will, what's a headline. It's about going to that, you know, much deeper level. And I think we're desperate for it as a society. We need to allow for that complexity, to allow things to be multiple and, and you know, multiplicitous, um, to allow for inclusion and openness rather than exclusion and simplicity. So I, I, that's what draws me to creativity, and that's why I, I make time for it. I have to make time for it, um, because I think if we don't, as a society, we become sick. You know, it's 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 dangerous. It's damaging. It's the only thing that'll save us. <laughs> yes, I've heard you talk about your need to write 
you know, daily or several times a week. And it, you know, it sounds like you talk about it like somebody's need to go to the gym just to keep going. And, mm. and it is, it's like sort of, we're, we're very obsessed with physical fitness and stuff, but this kind of keeping, keeping the mind agile and also integrating that sort of the thinking and feeling thing, which I think is just going to be so, it is always important, but it's even more important the more crisis we, we face. And you're a great performer of your poetry. And when you talk about this, you know, it's, it's like almost a physical need to sort of do it. I'm curious about what it was like for you. And you grew up, from what I've read you say, that you grew up with poetry around you and children's books and music and in all sorts of very... Um, very grounded, very there, very contemporary ways. And then you went to Oxford. I studied literature. I, I was, was studying, I, I don't know what, I, I mean, I know why I chose these three, but I didn't realize when I went that, you know, you do not, you do, not do a PhD thesis on writers who have been written about a gazillion times. So the three people I chose to study um, were James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, neither of whom were poets as such. Um, oh, jo mm -hmm. Joyce has written poetry, well, but I was actually studying Ulysses yeah, yeah. and the Waves. They're very poetic but for writers. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, but I was studying Ulysses mm. and the Waves, which I guess people don't count mm -hmm. as poetry. You probably could make mm. a case for it, but I did. I was studying them as fiction, but um, also uh, W.B. Yeats. So I had the three of them, and Yeats, of course, is a poet. Mm. I was studying particularly um, very difficult thesis topic. Um, the Articulation of Silence was my title. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I guess I was looking at um, getting towards, um, or I was exploring in my thesis. Um, and I was writing a thesis, so I was working on postgraduate level. So uh, I was exploring um, this notion of, I guess, feeling association, um, imagery, in, a, I guess, a, almost a, a non-semantic way. Uh, it was it was too hard for me. I didn't actually do my PhD. I did a master's thesis, which was um, about mm -hmm. all I could manage out of it. And and I did fine with it, but then I was pretty well done and there was nothing left I could add. So, um... Well, it's a wise choice to salvage, you know, but it sounds like it, it was that, that interest in silence like we were talking about before, the pauses mm. and the spaces in the poems, between the poems, in between the books and so on. It's so... How did that, do you think, affect your work later? I think it it, it affected my work tremendously and it continues to do so. In fact, I, I keep thinking whenever I write something, oh, that's really what my thesis was meant to do. <laughs> I, need, I just couldn't do it without metaphor and imagery. So I was really just trying to write a poem. Yeah. And, and in fact, I got, I got in trouble at one point. Um, my supervisor, who wasn't particularly nice to me, I must say, um, and, and probably because I was horrifically naive as well, and also American, many things against me. Um, mm, American studying the, the English Yes, rights, it was yes. daunting. It was a, da <laughs> a beautiful, beautiful university, but very daunting for me. Um, and uh, he, at one point, he pulled me up and he said, you know, you're going to pass your qualifying exam. You're going to get this, you know, sort of master's level thesis through. I know you will, but I have to tell you, your writing is you know, you use far too many metaphors in your writing. <laughs> so I should have realized then that, you know, what I was looking for had to have metaphors. Whereas today you could probably do a non-traditional thesis and do a book of poems and write an exegesis with it and it would be ideal. So maybe. Well, if it's creative writing, but I was actually doing a literature degree, not a creative writing degree. So fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but you, you could, you would fit right in now with a, a sort of... Um, the current trend in a lot of um, 
creative writing degrees. Maybe. I will say there is a little tiny part of my mind that is going, go back, go back, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> um, and I, I, I want to also quote, um, because I, I did find a, a really good quote. Um, I want to quote the, the fabulous poet Tracy K. Smith, who, um, mm -hmm. who said, in her, she's written an essay on poetry, staying human poetry in the age of technology. And uh, what she said in that is one of poetry's great effects through its emphasis upon feeling association, music and image, things we recognize and respond to even before we understand why is to guide us towards the part of ourselves so deeply buried that it borders upon the collective. Oh, that's beautiful. It's a wonderful quote. And I think it picks up some of the questions that you asked me, you know, this idea mm, of what is mm. the importance of poetry is, is it, uh, you know, how do you justify doing it? And I, I think that notion of mm. getting to that part of ourselves that borders upon, that the whole notion of bordering upon the collective I love and I think is, mm. is entirely appropriate and, and not able to be gotten on in other ways other than creatively. You write, um, that tower became the physical embodiment of everything my mother marched against. Mm bundling me into a minibus for Washington, handmade placards and gas masks. And I think I read somewhere that your mother was in a rock band. She was. She was in a feminist rock band. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had a very unusual mother. Well, certainly very different to mine. Um, but tell us a bit about your, your influence, your mother, on you as a writer. And it feels like there's sort of a, an undercurrent of, of grief about your mother in this book as well. Yes. Well, okay. So my mother was 17 when she had me. Um, she was oh. a very young mother. And uh, I think partially as a result of that, um, we sort of grew up together. <laughs> um, and many times I felt like the mature, responsible one, as is often the case when you're a child of a young mother. Um, I was certainly the pragmatic one. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, we were very close. Um, you know, her marriage to my father didn't last very long at all, as it tends not to when you're that young. Um, and so uh, she was a single mum for a long time. It was just the two of us. Um, we, although my grandparents, her parents, were also pretty heavily involved in my life, which was wonderful for me because they were amazing um, as parental figures for me. They gave me that stability. But also um, my mother would take me along. I, w I guess I was a pretty good kid. And she would take me along to a lot of the things that she did. Um, I just came with her. Um, she wasn't, she was pretty poor and um, we couldn't really afford babysitting. Although my grandmother, again, would always babysit sit me, but my mum kind of liked me coming along. I was a grounding influence, <laughs> being pragmatic. Um, so I'd go along to look after her. You were the handbag. Yeah. And you, don't, you don't have the husband handbag. I know. You've got the baby handbag. I know. She dressed me up and stuff. Um, and yeah, she was in a rock band. It was called, um, uh, wait, um, Golden Flower, I think. Goldflower. Goldflower, which is a, a, a sort of Chinese feminist tale. And, uh, and I'm still in, I still know, I'm in touch with one of the people who was in that band. Um, oh. And and they would sing, you know, they went to like um, a women's prison, women's prisons and stuff like that, and they would perform. And I would sometimes be allowed to go on stage with a tambourine. So yeah, it was a fun, fun kind of hippie-ish <laughs> upbringing. And and we did one day she did, we, you know, we did go to uh, the Poor People's March in Washington, and we got tear gassed. <laughs> Trump was oh, wow. definitely the enemy and represented. I mean, that oh. again, as I say, this is. Uh, as true a poem as I've ever written. And uh, that did happen. You know, she was very much against him and against everything that he and his kind of robber baron philosophy represented. Did she live to see him get elected? No. 
she died she died um it was about five and a half years ago yeah, so i think yeah. no it was just predated when was it, it was yeah. it was a, a who could ever believe that yeah I mean, that's imagine right going back to her in the 60s and 70s and saying and he's going to be i know president. that's right no so she didn't <laughs> she didn't and she died quite young as well which obviously right. um and and because i'm here there's all the migrants guilt that goes, you know, that goes hand in hand and that I did fly back. I, w I was very lucky um, to fly back and take care of her a little bit through her illness, but it was difficult. I had children at home. So I was, you know, I was a little bit torn um, between going back to look after her when we found out she had cancer, it was cancer. Um, mm. But first she had a kidney out. We didn't know that it was cancerous. So I went back after the kidney came out to spend a bit of time with her and then went back again after the diagnosis and then didn't quite make it back for the, the third time. But it was three trips to the US in the space of uh, just a couple of months. So it was pretty intense. Did she introduce you to poetry or to words? Uh, well, I mean, there was always music. Um, but I, I will also say that I came, like my mother's side of the family, well, both sides of the family actually um, were pretty artistic. So, I mean, my um, my father's side of the family, they are all English teachers, English professors, English <laughs> teachers. Um, everybody was, you know, that, that was very, very artsy family. Um, my mother's side of the family, all music, a lot of music. My uncle's composer. And my grandmother was a singer and, uh, and always, you know, she started to go back and do musicals and stuff when I was a, a teenager and um, always singing, constant singing. The household felt like a musical, you know, as soon as somebody would say wow. something that evoked a musical, she would burst into <laughs> a, a musical song. And, uh, and I do, I find myself doing the same. So um, my uncle, the composer, he's Ricky and Gordon, and he's doing brilliantly. He's very literary, and uh, he was only ten years older than me, so he was my mum's kid brother. And we were pretty close. And I guess when I was about eleven or twelve, um, and I was writing pretty bad poetry, he decided to give me—and by bad, I mean kind of intense, teenagey oh. stuff, angsty. Yeah, eleven or twelve. <laughs> yeah, that's right, uh, or thirteen or something. Um, he he gave me a package of poetry books, which I still have. And it included uh, Sylvia Plath's Ariel, wow. <laughs> um, and and also books by Anne Sexton, wow. Live or Die. Uh, it was it had Rimbaud, oh, <laughs> the Drunken Boat, um, and some Bertolt Brecht. So wow. it was a pretty intense package in which he said, you know, you might want to read these things. I can see you're tending in this direction. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful thing to have someone like that in your life. Yeah, and he was very. You know, he was very lovely oh. about it, you know, said, I can recall him saying, you know, you have a, an exciting life ahead of oh. you and, you know, you might enjoy this. So he stayed pretty influential. Um, whenever I see him, he's he's got an incredible memory. So he will always quote poetry mm -hmm. to me when I see him and he sets poetry to music. A lot of his, he, he writes his own poetry, but a lot of his own music has been poetry set to music. Uh, you know, he's done a lot of Emily Dickinson and uh, Yeats's The Lake Isle of Innisfree. You know, so much stuff that I've learned through listening to it through his music or poems that I know because I've heard him set them to music. So that's very, very much a part of, I guess, my own. I feel it's part of my DNA. And I guess that has influenced the musicality in your writing too, the, the rhythm and the, the shades and light and dark and so on that you get into that. Absolutely. But rhythm is such a, a wonderful part of what poetry mm. does. I mean, rhythm and, and you know, the, the, the context and the structure and the light space and, the, you know, the, the sonics of it is, um, I think it's just as important as semantically what you're getting at. Mm. And I think it's lovely. I think everybody needs when they're, 
10 or 12 or whatever age, somebody to tell you sort of, uh, you'll get better. <laughs> you know, keep writing kind of thing because I yeah, needed somebody in my childhood. I stopped writing because I wasn't as good as what I was, you know, the few books I had that I was reading. Oh, but I will also say that my mother, you know, of course, always read to me when I was little. It was, mm. uh, it's, I guess, for her, those moments when she would sit me down and, and read me a book and, you know, read them dramatically yeah. to me were pleasurable moments for the two of us that, you know, everything that we were struggling with or everything that was happening during the day would stop and it would just be us and the story. And I still remember, you know, I remember like there's just that sense of, of joy when we would be reading a book together and it would be, you know, Maury Sendak probably or, you know, or Cat in the Hat or, you know, some Dr. Seuss book or um, Harold and the Purple Pencil. You know, there's some of these books really, really um, sit deeply within me and my my history. And and, and my father, too, he, he would get me books and we would read things like, you know, there were books that, that I kind of see as being books that belong to him, like the Ping and there, there were other books that kind of sit within his area. Um, Curious George, that's always something he would read to me. So it sounds like you kind of keep people with you through the books they read you and the things they introduce you to as well. That's part of our as you, memory, the way we store memory, the way we store affect and feeling and so on is... Absolutely. I can tap straight into oh. those feelings that I had as a kid when they were reading to me and I, I would feel them again when I would read the same books to my own children who you know, are wonderful readers as well. And I, maybe that's all it takes is to read a lot to your children. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's very much a part of who I am. I can't imagine myself without oh. that. Well, you are not just a voracious reader, because I know that you do, like with your compulsive reader enterprise website, I don't know what you want to call it, because you've got the, the website, you've got the newsletter, which I encourage people to subscribe to, and you've got the podcast where you interview other writers. But you seem to read an enormous amount of books. But not only do you, not only are you a voracious reader, but you're a very generous reader. I was just wondering if you have any tips for people who might have maybe had maybe even been put off poetry in their childhood and maybe hadn't thought about that the cat in the hat is poetry. So when they go, I don't like poetry, well, do you like cat in the hat? You know, that kind of thing. But someone who might sort of go, oh, I don't understand poetry. I don't get it. I don't know how to read it. Have mm. you got some tips for how someone might find more ease in getting getting enjoyment out of poetry? Oh, for sure. Look, um, I mean, I have children who, <laughs> I have three children who've been, you know, who are in high school, who, uh, you know, have been getting bad mm. teaching. I'm sorry to say, um, of poetry, sometimes good, but mostly bad. I have to say that. And then that's probably because their teachers also don't enjoy it and have to teach it as part of the syllabus. And, you know, they have to teach it to be marked yeah. to some product that you then mark and stuff and has to be reduced down yeah. to what did the poet mean? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I do have some tips. I mean, the first thing is just in terms of the reading is it doesn't, you don't have to translate it. You know, you can, you can. As you said, you can you can just read it and sit with sit with it for a bit um, because it is complex. It's not there is no direct correspondence. It doesn't mean one thing. It will never good poetry will never mean one thing. And so you can actually go like I know people will go well. You know I don't quite understand that. Um, you don't have you, you know you don't have to understand it intellectually necessarily. You can also understand things viscerally or. Um, emotively or just allow that sound to filter in and and just let it sit with you for a bit um, before you start to say what is what are they getting at here what is what is the story 
because it's not only story it's it's other things too and and so that's one thing the other thing i would say is you know take a course there is so much available online and and i'm gonna this is my um soapbox but um there is a fantastic course um and i i think my latest status on facebook is is championing this course as well it's called mod po or modern and contemporary poetry and it's taught it's a mooc a massive online open course it's extraordinary i mean it's like getting to some of the best teachers of poetry around and you just get it for free yeah yeah it's completely free and it's uh it's done every it's run every year out of the university of pennsylvania it's a fabulous course they also do an in-person for credit expensive version but this one is free it's open so many people take it, but it's it's kind of led up by the fabulous Professor Al Philreis, and he does such a I can't I can't sing its praises enough. And I've studied literature, you know, at a postgraduate level, and I read a lot. And I thought I knew how to read poetry, and it has opened so many doors for me, in terms of approaching particularly complex. I mean, there's some poetry, you know, Dorothy Porter, who I could open and and would immediately be crying within five minutes. But there was other poetry that I, you know, Gertrude Stein, who I just couldn't read. I didn't know how to even begin to read that poetry. Michael Farrell, you know, there are modern poets who I struggled with tremendously. And I just put it aside and said, I don't know what to, to do with this, which I now love thanks to that course. So it taught me to read postmodern experimental poetry. And I still don't love everything I read. Of course not. But it has taught me to open my heart to things that don't come necessarily easily to me first go and it's been a tremendous boon and I think that's it sometimes people just need permission to yeah, not get or it to, or sometimes no one's going to be asking you a question you don't have to sit an exam about what it means and and also um, another tip and I did get this out of Modpo as well but um, think about collaborative reading as well because all reading is collaboration <laughs> um, every time you're reading you're negotiating how you know the that act of reading is always a collaborative engagement with the text um and and i think sometimes in poetry in particular it's a short form generally and it lends itself to reading in a group so i do find sometimes it's entirely pleasurable to sit down with a number of people and work through meaning collectively with them that's something that you can do in a course like mod po but you can also just gather a bunch of friends and say you know I, i've done that with um <laughs> i've been doing it incredibly slowly but we've been doing it with uh michael farrell's i love poetry i've got a group of people and we're all collaboratively reading it very very slowly but it's been tremendous fun to share oh yeah that'd be great yeah to join yeah. that one i'll invite you in Amazing book. I've taken up singing lately, mm. you know, in a choir and so on, and just the pleasure of singing to each other. And we just don't do mm. that. And it, the pleasure of reading a poem to somebody else or having someone read a poem to you is a lovely idea. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, a really good tip about sort of... One more tip yeah? as well. Um, uh, and I, I can't recommend this highly enough. Um, there is something so wonderful, so utterly pleasurable about hearing a, a poet read their own work. Mm. And so I would highly, and particularly in person, I recommend going to a reading. Go to, there's so many around nowadays at all sorts of different times. There's gotta be one that fits somebody's schedule. Um, and just go and, and, and just go and sit there and listen, you know, and be part of that atmosphere. It's, it, it's tremendous. There are so many good ones. There have been, you know, an explosion 
in in readings now and and there's something for everyone there's an extraordinary lot of talent and energy in poetry in australia at the moment in melbourne quite possibly every night of the week you could find something on Mm. that you could go to so and again that goes back to the musicality of it and everything that we sort of we listen to music collectively Mm. that we sort of you know sit and read on our own and so to find ways to enjoy it as a collective experience too is a beautiful is a great thing yes and kind of a nice gift for the reader too i mean because again every performance is a new negotiation um, or a new collaboration if you like and you're part of that collaboration as being in the audience well speaking of poetry and reading how about i get you to read precarious inscrutable yes precarious and can you just explain very quickly the subtitle Yes. Um, So the title itself comes from an actual poem by C.A. Conrad, who's a fantastic American poet, um, whose work I absolutely love. It's um, his poetry is, or their poetry, I should say, is um, rather extraordinary, very different from anything you've come across. And um, the poem that it the title references is called Mars 2. And the line is, all clocks are precarious, inscrutable windows. So that's what I was um, referring to in the title. I wrote this poem after watching a film written about C.A. Conrad's life called The Book of Conrad, which is, I think it may be publicly available if you, uh, if you Google it or put in the show notes or something. Mm-hmm. It's um, The Book of Conrad. Yeah, we'll see if we can find it. And there's a lot of ecology and a lot of talk about ecological, uh, the disappearance, particularly the disappearance of species. Uh, there's a line, I think, that uh, Conrad says, in the film about the terrible, terrible silence of all those missing species. And so that's what inspired this poem. So precarious and scrutable. When the sea rises to eye level, tears become redundant. Every day a baker's dozen or more. The red list has 20,000 names. 20,000 is a random number, unbounded like E or pi, though more finite. Zero is usually taken for granted, understandably, like the sound of nomadic flocks, passenger pigeons aggregating, flapping, filling the sky in thickened clouds, warbling, dropping, disappearing, leaving a silence so profound it hurt the ears until we got used to it. Our eardrums morphed, attuned to the sound of the engine, the clack of a keypad. We filled the gap with gunshot, cash registers, the slide of plastic, the squeal of pigs heading for slaughter, lathes, hammerings. Efficient death is noisy business, a noise we cling to in order to hide the increasing silence of billions of missing mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, the cardinality of the empty set. Such a joy and pleasure to listen to you read your poems. There's a lot of um, scientific mathematical references in that. I mean, Mm. I love the, I mean, like music itself is very mathematical at times, so it sort of feels relevant on that level. But high by step, I've just got a quote here someone described it as drawing together the macro perspective of the universe with the micros perspective of heartbreak which is a gorgeous way of describing it and your other books you've got titles like unmaking atoms Mm. 
quark soup and repulsion thrust. So tell us a little bit about your interest in science and perhaps in quantum physics in particular. Yes, it's a, it's about as close as I'll ever get, I'm afraid, but uh, there you go. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great mix because we've just sort of talked about all your background in literature, in yes. education and so on, and then you've got all this science stuff in there. It's true. I did, um, when I was an undergraduate, I, uh, I did an astrophysics course, but it was a kind of intro astrophysics intro to astronomy, really more astronomy than astrophysics. And uh, and I did quite well in it. And I went up to see the instructor afterwards. And I said, uh, you know, I, I just love this course so much. What's the next step? You know, what can I do after this? And um, he said to me, and probably rather meanly, um, yes, you're an English major, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> he said, there's not really anywhere you can go with this. You better, uh, if you want to go further, you're going to have to go back and do more math, which is fair enough. Um, so I, I, I just, I have a very strong attraction to, um, to science in particular, quantum physics, astrophysics. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only poet. I know I'm not the only poet. Um, uh, Alicia sometimes is another poet and she's, I, I said to my daughter the other day, she's living my best life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She gets to go to all these wonderful um, science events and, you know, meet with these uh, fabulous people like Brian Cox and um, and hang out and, and talk physics and then write poetry about it. Um, so it's, uh, it's just, I think, an attraction. Um, my son is doing actual astrophysics and he likes to laugh at me because, you know, he's he'll tell me something and I'll go write a poem about it and he'll go, you don't really understand. <laughs> you just don't understand this, do you? I'll say I understand all I really need to understand at this point. Um, so I'm I'm just a fake. I'm a faker, really. I'm not a real scientist. Although I do have a day job, which is in R and D, and I do truly work with real scientists, and I do have a pretty good knowledge of scientific language. I you know pull together R and D text concessions and stuff like that, where you have to translate projects into clear layman's language. And after a long time of doing that, I do really do understand scientific language um, reasonably well. <laughs> um, I'm probably closer to science than I am to math, which I definitely don't understand. But then I also am still drawn to it. I mean, there's such beauty and elegance mm. in a you know beautifully written equation. Mm. I think I like it better for not understanding it or having to make it work than I do if I had to actually resolve it to something. Mm, well, it's, an, it's a wonderful combination of sort of your interesting words and then working with scientists and living with scientists. And, yeah, um, and it does and give us a language Learning the language, yes, mm. the mathematics of the language itself, of, mm. of science and, and the way you use them and stuff. So um, they're not just randomly thrown in. You've actually got a sort of a sense of the, the way it works as a, a schema um, or as a, as a language. Yeah, and I do, I do read a fair bit of lay science as well. I mean, uh, you know, there's almost nothing for me more poetic than, um, you know, Stephen Hawking's or um, his writing is so beautifully um, poetic. Or, you know, I, I think at, at the level of quantum physics in particular, I think, um, we can't see these things. I mean, I, I have a, my, my very first published poetry book is called Quark Soup. And uh, I can recall saying back then, you know, you nobody's ever seen a quark. I don't think yet, maybe soon, but nobody's ever seen a quark. And so really the hypothesis 
hypothesis itself um, is kind of a poetic thing. You kind of have to throw it out there. <laughs> and that Absolutely. seems to me to be very poetic to then yeah. start to work with it and see if you can disprove it. Poetry kind of works like that too. You kind of begin with your hypothesis or your concept, if you like. And then you play with those images and try and resolve it to something that is coherent and can't be broken as you're editing it or working through it. There are similarities there. Can you just tell us quickly a little bit about the podcast? When did you start Compulsive Reader? You sound like you would have been one of the first podcasters in Australia, but I think. I probably wasn't the first podcaster in Australia, but um, I did start my blog a long, long time ago. Um, I mean, Compulsive Reader itself, it goes way, way back. It's it's like, um, wait, I think it's 20 years old. Let me tell you exactly. Wow. Um, I'm going to give you the exact time frame. It might be 21. Um, I was originally, yeah, it's 21 years old um, and it will be 22 next year. So it's, it's yeah, it's been around a long time. So you began it in the late 90s. Yes, I did begin it a long mm. time ago in the very early days of the internet. Given that the internet really only sort of got going in, what, 1990. Mm. Six. I was. Um, and the browsers came. I know. In. That's yes. <laughs> yeah, it's been around a long time. What What happened was I, um, I, I had. I was. On, I think I might have been on maternity. My first maternity leave, um, and uh, I was doing a lot of reading as I always have done. And um, I, there was some websites that I was just starting to visit as a young mother, um, looking for information about my kids and, you know, about motherhood. And there were a couple of motherhood blogs. And one of the ones that I was following was looking for some book reviewers. They put up a call and I put my hand up. I said, oh, sure, I'll do it. Um, you know, I, I've always written. I've written since I was a teenager and, um, and uh, I, you know, I, I've always read, so I can write a book review. Um, I wasn't doing anything at, at that point in terms of reviewing. I was just reading a lot. And she said, great, I'll send you a book. And it was Tears um, by Frank McCord. <laughs> but she didn't oh. just send me Tears. She sent me a two-volume, volume, I had already read Angela's Ashes, and she sent me a two-volume set of Angela's Ashes and Tears. And, um, and it was gorgeous. You know, it was really beautiful. It was like a two-volume hardcover set that just came in the post. And then she offered me an interview with Frank McCourt too. And I was like, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, I, How it was a really good start and I was, I was hooked. So I, I did quite a few um, reviews for this website called Box Planet, which then went under. She, the woman who was running it closed it. And I thought, no, I, that, that can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got an addiction now. I need to feed it. Um, and uh, compulsive because there was a steady stream of books coming in, and there was interviews. I had an interview with Peter Carey, which was very exciting for me because oh goodness, he was kind yeah. of my hero at the time. It was, I think, just after the true history of the Kelly Gang. So I, I really needed to keep it going, and and I didn't know what to do. But um, I actually got approached by somebody, and I decided to start my own website for for some reason, and um, and I just brainstormed the name compulsive reader and started with a blog and you know it just built up from there i got a content management system and just kind of messed around with it i was a pretty comfortable it fiddler at that point um, i took a few classes in programming when i was at oxford just when i was prevaricating and um <laughs> trying to uh i was i was actually um I was probably procrastinating from working on my thesis and decided to take some programming courses. And I found I was surprisingly good at it for somebody who was bad at math. 
So, uh, well, again, it's, it's linguistic. Exactly. It was, um, it was really yeah, about yeah. language and context and systems, mm. language, the way things work together, the spaces, the silences. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was comfortable with IT. I still am kind of comfortable with it, messing around. And, uh, and I had my website and then I started a newsletter and it's been going ever since and growing and we have 10,000 subscribers and, wow, you well know, done. lots of people submit stuff. So I don't write all the reviews myself. I might only do two or three a month. And I, I should also say I'm not a fast reader. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am compulsive about it, but I'm not fast. So I'm actually slow in getting slower. <laughs> um, I don't read quickly. I just read constantly. And I don't tend to watch a lot of television or do other things. So um, reading is my hobby and, and I do it for pleasure. Um, and I guess I, I feel I do it well um, because I really do allow myself to fully immerse in a good book. I, there's nothing I like better. I really enjoy it. No matter how evaluative my reading will be as I'm as a book reviewer I never want to stop just losing myself like a child in the joy of a book oh that's lovely join that 10,000 people while you're there subscribe to climactic and Artbreaker podcast which is what you're listening to at the moment yes I'm I will definitely be subscribing to climactic <laughs> it's it's great it is a, an amazing thing that started only about a year ago and it's already now branching out into these sister podcasts this one about art in time of climate change so it's amazing what comes when someone just sort of decides i'll have a go and jumps in so mm. and and you know then i i also have to say that um we live in a very fast-paced world we're all busy one of the reasons that I started Compulsive Reader and what keeps me doing it um, and, and the podcast is it kind of forces me to slow down. Um, it forces me to engage more deeply, I kind of commit myself when I open a book to really reading it properly and taking the time over it. And then writing about it is like a second reading where I can go back and go, okay, you know, why has this worked for me? What, what's so powerful about it? What's unique about it? What's you know, what has happened to me as I've read this book as a reader? And so that, that's a, just a wonderful, pleasurable activity that I think is important. Yeah. And, and to read with that kind of generosity of sort of then wanting to reach out and share is, is I think, actually does enhance the reading process too. Mm. And it's a community. It's a way of connecting with other readers. It's a way of connecting with the author. It's a uh, it's really um, that sort of, again, that uh, I come back to Tracy's quote, uh, Tracy K. Smith's, and she's a wonderful poet. I come yeah, back to her. Yeah, give us that quote again. Yes. Should I say it again? Should I? Yes, please. One of poetry's great effects through its emphasis upon feeling, association, music, and image, things we recognize and respond to even before we understand why, is to guide us towards the part of ourselves so deeply buried that it borders upon the collective. Well, that's just beautiful. And I'm going to get you to read one more poem before we go. And can you read Myrtlewood? Myrtlewood. A tiny room, tiled in black earth. Every day is a fight to open the door. A war on stasis. The moment of impact. We disappear into a dappled forest of, forest of glass. Memories surface and slip. If I won't be saved, you can't save me. Inside Myrtlewood, the soft light, endless night. Still the world outside cries, crumbles. Pathology is hierarchy, a privilege where no one gets saved. A time capsule emptied of artifacts, leaving no clues, 
It may be I was never here, never hid beneath the skylit canopy, never so alone. If I won't be saved, there's no need to part the dark green leaves, touch my hot skin, and push me to action. Resistance so silent, it makes even the trees shudder. Thank you so much, Magdalena Ball. Just tell us, how can people get hold of your books? Firstly, uh, if you want to find out any more about me and any of the books I've written, um, just go to magdalenaball.com. That's just M-A-G-D-A-L-E-N-A-B-A-L-L, magdalenaball.com. And everything is there, including links to buy any of the books. Um, High Wire Step is available through Girls on Key Press. So again, if you just Google Girls on Key Press, um, you can find it there. And uh, But you can also find it through my website. Fantastic. And how can they subscribe to your newsletter and podcast? If you go to magdalenaball.com, there's a link, but um, that's compulsivereader.com. Mm-hmm. So if you just go there, the you can subscribe directly on to the top. And uh, the podcast is Compulsive Reader Talks. And uh, that's also on iTunes, so you can subscribe through iTunes or whatever it's going to become when iTunes disappears soon. Um, and But if you just go to magdalenaball.com, there's links to everything directly from my website. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. And our thanks to Magdalena Ball for her time and for her readings of her work. Please do check out the links in the show notes to Magdalena's work. Our thanks as well to Beth Spencer, one of the co-hosts of the new Artbreaker program on the Climactic Network. Artbreaker is all about the art we make in this time of climate crisis. You can find a link at www.climactic.fm artbreaker and find a link in the show notes to the first episode, her interview with author James Bradley. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.